Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Michael, great to be able to catch up with you. It's certainly been uh, a while now. And, um, you know, when we think about investing in over the past year or so, even longer, of course, you know, we've been in this lower for longer interest rate environment. But now, of course, with the pandemic, um, we know that central banks around the world are printing money. And that's caused even more people, I would think, but you tell me, to be interested in how you invest, which is real assets. So maybe respond to that a little bit and give us just a, a quick backdrop to in terms of how and what you're focused in on. Well, of course, Catherine. Again, wonderful to see you again. It's been so long. And I think about the last 12 months in this pandemic, it seems to it has has flown by, really. But I look at what's gone on, and we've had a, a bit of a challenging monetary policy landscape for even longer than 12 months. I go out over the last 10 years. And to your question about or point about lower for longer, I think what you've seen with central bankers worldwide is a coordinated effort to keep rates not only artificially low, but we're, we're plumbing the depths of negative yields in some of these countries. Just have to just talk to Europe. You look at the discount rates and everything that's going on, it's quite concerning. And when you look at the amount of negative yielding debt out there, you've seen money flowing into North America as the result of it. But I think what you've also seen is, a, is an artificially manipulated environment, or for lack of a better phrase, we've seen a malinvestment process, almost a sickly investment process in the bond market. It's led to admittedly risk-seeking behavior with a lower for longer environment. You provide this excess capital, excess liquidity. You've seen momentum growth and tech stocks on a tear over the last decade, despite the fact that some of them have very little to no earnings very little to no financial strength or, or defensible market share. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of the risk-seeking behavior in the equity markets and markets in general because of the lower for longer environment and rates has led to very unique but challenging investment environment. And so when we look at how we're, we're working with our institutional clients and some of our funds we're managing for financial advisors in Canada, U.S., other places – you know, we continue to maintain the, the, the viewpoint of taking a multipolar approach in a bipolar world, right? Because you look mm -hmm. at equity, you look at fixed income, very bipolar outcomes there. You know, we look at, at real assets as being complementary. So think about infrastructure, real estate, natural resources as being complementary to equities and fixed income, providing inflation protection, volatility reduction, return enhancement with an aggregate portfolio. So I think you know, I'll go back to your question about interest rates. You know, we've seen artificially low rates. You've seen central, uh, uh, a coordinated central banking policy globally to keep rates lower for longer. The COVID pandemic, which you were well into over 12 months into it globally, but you look at how the U.S. responded with, with stimulus. 
not only monetary policy, but direct checks to individuals. And if you, Catherine, you know, we, we've known each other for years, almost a decade now. And if you would have said to me 10 years ago that people would be speculating in GameStop or Dogecoin or with their stimulus checks, I would have said to you, you're absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. We look at the environment mm-hmm. we're in today. And my 14-year-old and 17-year-old, they both have a Coinbase account. They both have brokerage accounts. They're both investing in Dogecoin. They're both investing in other things. So I think our basic financial literacy has almost been challenged to the core. And I think we need to, to reset or get back to the basics of asset allocation and risk management and, and really looking at fundamental asset allocation policies in terms of real assets. I mean, I could, I could go on and on about it, but mm-hmm. I think the opportunity right now is to incorporate real assets into a portfolio for, for inflation protection, volatility reduction, and return enhancement because you're already starting to see momentum tech stocks pull back in the first quarter. You're already starting to see, you know, bonds have already gotten crushed, investment grade and other types of bonds have gotten crushed in the last, call it six to 12 months. And I think we're now just sort of plumbing the depths of an unknown area. We've never been here before in the course of history with rates and monetary policy in a pandemic like this. I think asset allocation matters now more than ever. Hmm, interesting. Um, and Michael, there's certainly a lot to unpack there, and we'll get to some of those areas that are in my head that you just mentioned. Um, but I first want to ask, you know, when we think about the next, I don't know, let's just even say five years, um, I mean, I guess what's key and critical to make sure that you get right? To, to me, it's it's understanding interest rates and, and therefore also inflation. Um, and yesterday, the Bank of Canada was really the first big central banker in the world to pull back on quantitative easing. Now, it's Canada, it's not the United States, it's not Japan in terms of a size. But do you think, A, that the BOC will be right in this move? Um, Because they're expecting a better than expected recovery. That's the reason for being able to pull back that tapering. And some people are saying, what, what are they thinking? I mean, there's a third wave going on right now, and we don't have the vaccine rollout in Canada that you do in other countries. So um, that that's leading some people to say maybe they're going to be wrong. But at the same time, if they're right, I mean, will we start to see other central bankers do the same thing? Are they actually taking a lead position here? And if that's the case, does that ch- is that going to end up changing any of your thinking as it relates to the interest rate environment and, and kind of what you just said? Excellent series of questions and excellent point, Catherine. And so when I look at the the Bank of Canada and their approach to monetary policy, it's it's not only fiscally prudent, I think they've always been leading edge and, and albeit conservative to your point order of magnitude. It's not Japan, it's not, but but the ability to take a nuanced approach to policy pull back on quantitative easing, which I believe the quantitative economist and, and, and investor over the last 26 years, I look at, at that as being fiscally prudent because there, there's a tremendous trillions of dollars of stimulus that's gone into the economy. To continue to, to stimulate the economy, it's almost like providing, putting out the punch bowl again at two in the morning at a party mm-hmm. in which a, that's irresponsible. B, the party may appear to be fun and it may go on till three, four in the morning, depending upon how old you are, your energy level and your ability to consume more. But I would say that it's, it's going to end up in a larger headache or hangover the next morning 
for investors and consumers. And, and with the continued stimulus that you're seeing from other bankers, not from Canada, but from other bankers, it's leading to more inflation. And if you were to take a look at the 12-month chart on commodities, Canada is a, a, a beautiful and natural resource rich environment. And when you look at timber, you look at some of the companies, it, whether you're, you know, you're looking at Canfor, some of these other, you know, timber companies and, and the amount of, of inflation, you know, lumber per board feet, you're talking 300% increase in the last 12 months. Corn, wheat, soy, agricultural commodity price inflation, copper, so base metals, industrial metals, all of these commodities that are the lifeblood of the economy are up as little as 50 to well over 300% in the last 12 months because of the stimulus, the monetary policy. And I would even, I go a step further to say irresponsible monetary policy hmm. of injecting it in the system. So they're creating inflation. And if you look at PPI and CPI and some of the fundamental indicators, they're leading to inflation. And you're looking at grocery, food at home, as well as food away from home, despite the fact that many restaurants are still closed, food away from home is getting more expensive. You've seen just in the last 24 hours, consumer products companies, Colgate, Palmolive, um, Procter & Gamble, they're all announcing that material cost inputs have become more expensive, commodities more expensive. And the press release was not about that they've become more expensive, but they've become more expensive and the punchline. So they're going to raise prices to the, they're going to pass that commodity price inflation on to the consumer. So for the Bank of Canada to, to, to taper is actually a leading approach in terms of monetary policy. I believe it's the prudent or, or the appropriate course of action and really wish that, that I would hope that some of the other central bankers would come to their senses and pull back on the reins. Mm-hmm. and be a little bit more fiscally prudent with their monetary policy. So with respect to the incredible inflation that we're seeing in some specific commodities that you mentioned, and, and also to your point, absolutely, this current earnings season, I mean, beware as it relates to the input costs that these CEOs are talking about increasing. And, and it, it, you know, it's coming to a movie theater near you in terms of as an individual, you know, we're going to see prices increase, um, period. But you know, when you think about what the governments are trying to do in terms of stimulus, they're trying to create growth. So are we seeing the prices increase on the commodity front because they're actually increasing demand, therefore growth? Or what, what's going on underneath the surface? Is it the pandemic that didn't allow for the supply to occur and that will rectify itself once we kind of get through this? And that's why a lot of the central bankers are saying, including BOC, that this is in fact just transitory. Don't worry anybody. Do you believe that or no? Uh, so to your last question, is it transitory in terms of inflation? Absolutely not. It's structural. And what you're seeing is actually stagflation where prices are, are rising faster than wages. And that's why you've started to see just in the last few weeks, the discussion of raising the minimum wage in the U.S. as well as in Canada, try and get some kind of wage inflation or artificially or socially engineer wages to go up. So they can, they can actually not destroy consumer purchasing power with this stagflation that's been created a la stimulus and monetary policy. So, so the next part of the discussion by central bankers and by politicians is how do you create wage inflation vis-a-vis -vis maybe not 
monetary policy, which they've already utilized all the tools in their toolbox, monetary policy, how about fiscal policy? So think infrastructure investing, where for every billion dollars of, of spending and in the infrastructure space and building these, these projects, you'll be able to generate for every billion dollars, 42,000 jobs. And these aren't minimum wage jobs like $15 an hour. These are 40, 50, $75 an hour jobs for welders and skilled tradesmen. So think the building trades unions where they actually work on pipelines, they work on solar, they work on wind, as well as renewable energy. So to think about dams and as well as transportation infrastructure, water and wastewater treatment facilities, that kind of you know, spending, fiscal spending, in terms of fiscal stimulus for infrastructure, will create the wage inflation, as well as these projects will help generate GDP growth, increase tax revenues, as well as if you if you look at the World Economic Forum's uh, long-term study on infrastructure investment, for every dollar spent on infrastructure investment, it creates a multiplier of three dollars of efficiency and productivity in a in a country, and places like Singapore, where they're very forward thinking and they've invested in their broadband infrastructure. They've invested in their water and wastewater treatment facilities and, and some of the other renewable energy technologies. They've really created a society that's highly functioning as a result of their focus and continued investment in infrastructure. And so, Michael, a couple follow-up questions. First, I want everybody to understand what stagflation is because people in general haven't talked about it for years. And it's something I've been thinking about or worried about since almost the beginning of QE because of all the stimulus that's been going on, didn't happen. Um, so by definition, stagflation is what? By definition, when, when prices, consumer prices rise faster than wages, what you're seeing is the, is the, is the absence of, of meaningful purchasing power increase commensurate with consumer prices. And you've seen CPI, consumer price index and PPI rising month over month, you're seeing anywhere from 50 to 80 basis points month over month, whereas mm. the wages are remaining stagnant. And said another way, if you look at purchasing power, if you're making the same dollar today, but yet your goods that you're going out and purchasing are, are going up 30, 40, 50%, your dollar buys less. So that type of stagflation, to your point, we haven't seen it in, in 40 plus years. In the 1970s, we saw stagflation. And admittedly, I was born in 69. I was an infant, but I, I read about some of the economic textbooks and, and think about it. The, the 1970s style stagflation where, where prices rose and inflation created that type of environment where wages were stagnant, it, it was the result of incredible government spending on the Vietnam War, incredible irresponsible spending by governments, the lack of investment in infrastructure, the lack of investment in creating meaningful jobs. And so as a result, there was a structural unemployment. Mm. People became structurally unemployed and thereby wages were not going up. There were more people competing for jobs. So wages actually saw pressure downward. And I would even say to present day, 2020 into 2021, if you look at some of the structural unemployment, you've, you've seen hundreds of thousands of restaurants closed. The discussion when fa in the fast food sector, if you think about McDonald's or even go to Tim Hortons, where they will use kiosks as opposed to have to pay uh, a higher minimum wage to the service employees, they'd rather employ a kiosk over the long term. This is how these large corporations in the fast food sector, that's how they're going to structurally create unemployment, as well as you've seen some structural unemployment in other sectors 
because the the workers have not been able to keep up with their skills. And I think what you're mm-hmm. seeing now is technology, automation, Amazon, e-commerce, structural unemployment in, in the in the fast food sector, for lack of a better phrase, structural unemployment in retail shopping. Think about if you look at some of the e-commerce numbers, people didn't stop spending during this last 12 plus months of the, of the pandemic. They just visited an e-commerce, e-commerce platform like Amazon or others, purchased more goods online, didn't have to go out to the store because they couldn't during a pandemic. Everything was drop shipped to their home. And it actually accelerated the e-commerce trend. So I think you're seeing structural unemployment in retail. Mm-hmm. Although some jobs, modest jobs were created in the warehousing sector because of e-commerce. You need people to work in those Amazon warehouses and other, but it wasn't commensurate with retail. So you've seen structural unemployment in two big areas. So think the, the, the consumer sector for, for retail, for food and shopping. And that's caused hundreds of thousands, almost millions of jobs of unemployment there structurally that that it's just not come back. So in in many ways, and this is one argument from some bond investors I speak with as as to why they do not expect any longer term inflation, that it will be transitory, which is what Fed Chair Jerome Powell believes, but is not what you're saying will be the case. And and that is driven by technology and and weighing down on wages. Now, at the same time, too, to your point, if, in fact, the Biden administration is successful in terms of infrastructure plans, you're saying that those jobs will have a higher wage associated with them. And my question is, will they actually be successful at putting some of those um, projects in place, these infrastructure plans, which dovetails right into how you invest? Um, because there has been commentary that, you know, there's been shovel ready plans for so long that never really got to fruition, never came to fruition. And, you know, I heard something the other, the other week that when we talk about building airports, I don't, I haven't checked this. I meant to check this before we spoke, but, uh, apparently the last large U S airport built was Denver many decades ago. How do you respond? 1995. 1995. It was it was completed. I flew. I was living in Denver. I flew out of Stapleton, and I on one on a Wednesday, and I flew back in to DIA Denver International Airport the very next day when it was fully operational. Wow! I actually remember it. It was part of history. I actually have a certificate somewhere around here in the office from it. But it was interesting because that was the largest. And I remember um, uh, Mayor Pena at the time actually was involved in any municipal bond issuance. I think there are over $3 billion worth of muni bonds, municipal bonds that were issued to underwrite that massive project. And so great question, Catherine, when you look at infrastructure and the ability to pass an infrastructure spending bill, I think success comes from a thousand parents, not mothers, not fathers. It, it comes from both parents and the family to, to build this. So it's gonna come from private capital. It's gonna come from public capital. So think equity and fixed income, publicly traded securities, as well as public private partnerships, as well as some government spending programs, because you've got a roughly $3.6 trillion infrastructure deficit just in the US alone. The American Society of Civil Engineers has a report card for infrastructure. And just for the United States, the U.S. is a D minus. It's almost a failing student in terms of infrastructure. And so it's, it's not only concerning, but there's, there are legitimate health hazards 
you're seeing things like Flint, Michigan, where the water was unclean. You, you look at states like the state of Pennsylvania, where I was born and raised, where there are 5,500 bridges in such a state of disrepair that they're hazardous to drive over. These are issues that have been long festering for 30, 40 years, of which the Biden administration is putting forth a package. And even before the U.S. election in November, both parties, Republican and Democrat, had both posited at least a $2 trillion infrastructure investment program because they, they understood it was the next logical policy move, fiscal policy move to make that would a address the infrastructure issue and, and, the, and the, the health and safety of the, of the consumers, taxpayers, B, it would create some meaningful jobs, that excellent paying jobs, high dollar jobs. Mm-hmm. See, it would create some meaningful GDP growth that's, that's healthy, almost organic GDP growth, not sugar high. It's, it's the difference in terms of nutrition, right? If you eat right. healthy, you'll be healthy. You know, not like when you work out and, and you have a healthy diet, you have a better lifestyle. But if you, if you show up for a race, you don't have the right nutrition, and then you think that you're going to eat some sugar to give you an artificial sugar high, you can run the race, but you may not make it to the finish line and actually you know, win the race. What we're going, mm-hmm. What's going on with monetary policy here, you're seeing a lot of that, that artificial stimulus, that sugar high monetary policy that's just been, been handed out like candy. And it's not healthy for the economy. It's not healthy for the consumer in terms of the long-term nutrition and health of the consumer of the economy. And you're seeing effects of that vis-a-vis the transitory inflation numbers, vis-a-vis you're not seeing it in terms of wage growth. And that's why there's stagnation in, in, in showing up in wages. And so I think both the political parties in the U.S. understand that infrastructure is a, a, a fiscal policy a force multiplier that actually can create meaningful GDP growth, boost wages. It's, it's good for the economy across the board, but it's the public and private sector will have to coordinate and communicate and work together hand in glove in terms of public and private capital developers, government, the capital markets in terms of equity issuance, as well as, as municipal bond or infrastructure debt issuance. And if you look at muni bonds last year, one of the largest volume issuers ever on record. So I think you're already starting to see the, the markets responding. Hmm. And so, Michael, um, you know, I think that because of the concerns going on in the world, um, really with respect to money printing from governments, you know, the word or the words real assets have, have gotten a lot of people's attention and people who are new to investing are more focused in a, on it. I think institutions and pension funds, they've obviously been, uh, depending on who they are, very heavily invested in real assets. It, it makes people, I think it makes people feel a little bit more comfortable uh, thinking that they have real assets. Now, in addition, they're also buying cryptocurrencies to hedge themselves against uh, you know, currency devaluations. But why don't you kind of just, when as you invest in, the, in real assets, why don't you kind of just maybe describe the bucket so people understand it's not just infrastructure or real estate. Maybe just kind of go through yeah. the, the areas that, that you think about. Great, great question, Catherine. And when we look at real assets, it's not only public markets, but private markets. So think private equity and private debt instruments. And when we look at real assets, it's not only infrastructure and real estate, but it's natural resources like timber and agriculture. You're looking at commodities, 
as well as other types of natural resource investments, industrial, as well as metals and precious metals, and creating a, a globally diversified multi-sector real asset strategy is complementary to a portfolio. It is, it's not only been shown if you have a diversified real asset strategy, it complements your common stock and bond portfolios. It gives you a better risk-adjusted returns, lower standard deviations, so almost acts like a shock absorber on your portfolio, gives you complementary returns with an income that's tied to the underlying assets. So the income you're getting is not fixed income, it's real asset income from operating entities that have inflation protection as well. So you investing across a continuum of not only infrastructure, real estate, commodities, agriculture, timber, timber metals, and mining, I think there's a whole continuum of real assets that provide unique risk and return opportunities. Mm -hmm. And we've created single sector strategies or funds for large public pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, as well as some of our institutional investors. But we've created diversified pooled accounts that have complementary risk and return uh, profiles, attributes that provide meaningful income as well as inflation protection. Mm -hmm. And when we think about investing, um, I, I was reading your um, your your presentation uh, to investors, and it was interesting when you think about some of those real assets to invest in, and how your approach has to be very methodical in the sense that you know anybody listening might say, "Well, I'm okay. I've got I've got commodity exposure because I bought a commodity ETF," but the commodity yeah. ETFs you know, the returns aren't necessarily, I don't know, it looks as though you have to kind of trade them. So what, what do you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and very astute observation, Catherine, when you, when you look at something like the GSCI Goldman Sachs Commodity Index or, or Bloomberg Commodity Index, and there are exchange traded funds or ETFs that are based off of these indices, the methodology is very flawed in the sense that you may have an over- allocation 30, 40, 50% to energy or an over allocation to metals and mining, 30, 40, 50% allocation to metals and mining. And so to your point, that's not something that's, that's, it doesn't change drastically. So if you just buy that ETF or an advisor, financial advisor, broker, investment professional buys it for you, they need to monitor it daily, weekly, monthly, because you may be investing in energy in the last six months in which you made 40, 50% returns, which is no complaint whatsoever. But heaven forbid you held that commodity ETF, either of those two commodity ETFs in 2014 or 15, when energy was down 50, 60, 70% energy E&P stocks, you had some serious capital impairment in your portfolio. And, and there were a lot of grumpy customers calling their broker, calling their financial advisor saying, hey, why do I have this exposure to commodities? B, what is the CTF doing? And, and C, how do I get out of it? And unfortunately, what they do is they sell commodities at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So having a more active approach to commodities, a more active approach to real assets in a diversified real asset fund mm -hmm. gives investors protection, professional oversight, and ability to not time the markets, but monitor and reallocate from energy to agricultural commodities to metals and mining, as well as precious metals, and a more nuanced approach in active management. So, so real assets actually as, a, as, a, as an asset class lends itself to active management. Hmm. 
And so how active are you then, Michael, in terms of, um, I don't know, buy, you know, buying positions within the commodity spectrum and trading them turnover wise? What, how active are you or and what I guess maybe you don't, you're not as active if, in fact, it's a smaller percentage of your overall portfolio. But I don't know if it is or not. No, that's the, again, excellent question, Catherine. And when I look at it, the, the turnover is as little as 75% to as much as 120, 130%. And I think each segment's different. Each, each theme is different. You know, energy, we see a, a structural uh, bull market in energy because of some of the capital destruction you've seen in the last 12 months because of COVID, right? We had a, a global cardiac arrest because of COVID. The economy stopped. People stopped driving, flying. Energy stocks went I would say anywhere from 40 to 70% down within one month. And you started to see wellheads close. You started to see operations were shuttered, oil and gas. And so as, as demand has come back online for, for hydrocarbons, you're starting to see you know, the inability to, to, to start up the operations creates that artificial tightness in the market. So it's a definition of commodity price inflation, increasing demand with steady or constant supply, with the inability to bring supply mm -hmm. on board to, to adequately meet demand, that's why you've seen E&P or energy stocks are up 50, 70% in the last six months. And I think, you know, agricultural commodities, really you've seen the inability to ship corn, wheat, and soy. And as the economies are recovering, you're starting to see record numbers of soy being exported to China again. And you're starting to see corn. There's there's whispers in, in Saskatchewan of five and six dollar corn, which is astounding. We haven't heard that since 2011. Hmm. And so you're starting to see the futures market and corns really starting to, to trade actively and daily, weekly, monthly. The, the numbers are being upgraded. And with the with the weather patterns layered on top of that, it's it's a trader's dream. And and quite candidly. I, you know, growing up in farm country, I look at it, farmers make more money when corn's more expensive. So the farmers, they all have smiles on their faces. They're out working long hours. They're, they're really enjoying it because they look like they have a shot at a pretty decent crop this year. So hmm. being active in the commodity and real asset space is actually very beneficial. But I think it takes a level of expertise, a level, level of expertise and depth of knowledge of each subsector. Yeah, absolutely. It does. I mean, you know, I always try to make sure that people who are new to the investment world understand that people like yourself and in my old world, I mean, you kind of just do this 24-7. And, and you also have to have um, your own area of expertise and then a group of analysts that support the portfolio manager as well, because you can't, you know, you can't know it to the in-depth degrees that you need to unless you've got that kind of support. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in active money managers. I'm also a big believer, too, in individuals participating. I, you know, I love individuals to have their own personal account because I think then you become more engaged. Um, but, uh, but, Michael, so in, in terms of the areas then that you're excited about, it does sound like it's energy. It does sound like it might be corn, um, infrastructure. What, what specifically, though, in infrastructure? You know, I think when people think about infrastructure, you know, it's, it's roads and bridges. Um, you know, we'll see if anything actually gets done there. But also 5G is another area that people talk about. So and, and cell towers. What are you excited about? Well, that's and, and and now you've touched upon my passion here. Right. When you look at what's going on, you know, you've seen a, a, a decreasing amount of investor investment in hydrocarbon, think oil and gas an increasing amount in renewables. 
And so I think there, there's a structural tailwind that's been accelerated by COVID in two areas in particular, that's renewable energy and 5G. And we'll first talk about renewables. If you look at renewables, you think solar and wind and, and uh, hydroelectric, you know, there's, a, there's meaningful, scalable, multi-billion dollar projects that were underway with COVID accelerating the, the, the oil and gas sector's demise, as well as a lot of investors and consumers were looking at corporate governance, particularly it's a nice way of saying, looking at management teams that despite the fact that the stock, uh, oil and gas stock is down 50, 60%, at the end of the year, the management team walks off with 20 or $30 million worth of compensation, despite the fact shareholders really are asking what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. I think investors have really reevaluated their positions in oil and gas. And they said, we'd rather skate to where the puck is going solar, wind, biomass, renewables, as opposed to where the puck is in terms of you know, E&P and energy companies, pipeline operating companies. So let's skate to where the puck's going and invest in the next generation of renewables. So if you look at companies like Sonova with residential solar, highly profitable, highly scalable, next generation, individuals can have residential solar and actually generate enough power energy that they can sell it back to utilities. So actually it's a longer term investment in your own home. And you're not paying money to a utility, you're actually generating energy and actually becomes a profit center for you longer term after everything's paid off. So we're very bullish on across names like Sunrun and SunPower as well as Sonova. And I look at companies that are in that residential solar, but also battery storage. So companies like Enphase, in which they have one leg into battery storage for these residential solar projects, as well as some commercial grade solar projects. And then they're also in hydrogen. Again, skating to where the puck is going, hydrogen and hydrogen technology for power generation on the commercial level, but also think consumer level, you're talking about massive uh, investment by the U.S. government in hydrogen-powered buses. You're talking about hydrogen fusion, in which you're seeing Lockheed and other big aerospace companies that invested billion dollars in concentrated hydrogen power generation and generators that are a fifth the size of a gas-fired power plant that generate 10 times the power. So energy economics are completely changing, which is exciting to me because you can invest in these companies that are smaller cap companies that you can see 20, 30, 30, 40% upside in a stock in one year, plus a little bit of modest income. And you're skating to where the puck is going in terms of hydrogen or solar or battery technology for the next generation of, of renewables and energy. And then we'll touch upon 5G. If you if you look at yeah. what's gone on in the last 12 plus months of COVID, you know the usage of Zoom, what we're doing today remotely in terms of video conferencing, it looks like a hockey stick. It goes up 10, 10, 20 fold over the, the, the different time periods that you look at. And I think work from home is not a trend that's transitory. I think you're seeing a lot of companies saying we need flexibility. People now are expecting to be able to work from home at very least three days a week or part-time. And so I think video conferencing is here to stay. So structurally, the, the working environment globally has been changed irreparably. And I think to accommodate that kind of bandwidth, to accommodate that kind of data usage, mm-hmm. you need a few things, 5G, but you need cell phone towers, we think towers business, and then you need data centers. And so we've always been bullish on data centers and towers over the last 10 years. We've invested in them, in, in them over the years in both publicly traded securities. So think SBA Communications, Crown Castle, 
as well as American Tower. And those are more like a real estate leaseback strategy. We're investing in hard assets. You've got inflation throughput. You've got income. But also, if you look at the data center space, uh, companies like Digital Realty or QTS, which is a smaller data center operator, but, but the, the hyperscale, as they call them, uh, data center providers like Digital Realty have provided large amounts of data and the ability to expand that footprint in data centers that accommodate this type of activity with video conferencing and 5G, mm-hmm. as well as the, the digital communications infrastructure of the world. And, and Michael, it's interesting when you talk about um, the new way we'll all be working, I was almost surprised a little bit to see in your presentation that um, that I guess right now, maybe 54% of populations are urban focused. And you say that's going to two thirds of the population by 2030. That's what everybody's kind of trying to figure out right now as well as whether or not people will move back to the city centers and, and want to, or whether or not they're going to stay in the suburbs. So where, where do you really sit on that? And then how do you invest on your thesis? Yeah, great, great question, Catherine. And, and when you look at the trend pre-pandemic, it was major coastal areas, major metropolitan areas. I don't have to tell you, you're in Toronto, you look at the condo market, you look at the residential market, it's been through the roof. And then with COVID, you saw people fleeing the major metropolitan areas, going towards the outskirts, towards uh, you know, some of these rural areas, and actually trying to get into more um, development and new, new home development in some of these other outlying areas. The structural problem is, since the great financial crisis, you know, the residential home building market has been irreparably scarred. And in North America, US and Canada, you haven't seen the, the requisite amount of homes. There's not enough product, single family home product on the market. The, the data I saw just two days ago were short. In North America, US and Canada, there's a deficit of 4 million single family homes. So despite the fact that people wanna move from the major metropolitan areas and they wanna move out or go live on a lake or go live remotely, um, congratulations if they were able to do it in the last 12 months, but so millions of people have not, have not been able to because they haven't found a place to rent, let alone to buy. And so structurally, there's not enough single-family housing and, and single-family product out there. So multifamily has been on a tear. But what you've seen in the last three months is people are realizing, I was on the phone with an advisor from Canada this morning hmm. in Montreal, and Darren said to me, we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning of this thing. Thank heavens we are, because we've been under lockdown for 12 months, and you know we've been under curfews since 8 p.m. from 8 p.m. onward, and but we're closer to the end than the beginning. We see light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train, so people are coming back to the urban areas. the The landlords are offering rental uh, agreements that are more genuine, more generous, and and more accommodating, with free rent for one, two, three months. So you're actually starting to see that that trend has shifted back to major metropolitan areas, whether it be Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. And mm-hmm. so people are coming back to New York. JP Morgan and other large employers have said, we, we would like you to come back. In parentheses, we need you to come back to the office by September. So people are already starting to arbitrage that. And you're starting to see people come back to apartments in major metropolitan areas, coming back to single family housing in major metropolitan areas. So you know, we earlier in the year, actually last year, we played single family through single family residential REIT. 
that are going out and developing single family residential and they're actually renting it to people that could not afford housing because of, admittedly single family housing product has become because of that scarcity they've become unaffordable. The average home in the United States is north of $430,000, which is stunning mm-hmm. when you think of the average income, right? So I think real estate in Canada, real estate in the US has become more expensive, not less. It's become unaffordable a la monetary policy and inflation. You've seen material price inflation, real estate inflation. So I think how you play it is not only to develop a multifamily, but also some of these other single family rental REITs that are publicly traded as an investor, you can, you can invest in some of these like SFR that are publicly traded that actually own and develop assets that rent back to single families that are, that are seeking to, to rent residential property because they quite candidly can't afford at this point. Hmm. Um, you know, what, one name that came across uh, my screen the other day that I used to know, my goodness, 15 years ago or so was Avalon REIT. Do you remember that one? Oh yeah, I, I don't know who was upgraded the other day or what. What 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 do you think of them these days? So Avalon Bay Communities and Avalon as a REIT. You know, I I look at some of the some of the REITs. They've been, if you look at the twelve month numbers, they've been totally destroyed. The the three month numbers and performance on them, you've seen a little bit of a beta bounce, and I think now structurally they're they're well positioned. They have assets that admittedly six, 12 months ago, people said there was so much distress in the market, Avalon Bay Communities is gonna be destroyed. They're gonna be out of business. There's, there's, there's no sense in buying a security like that. Mm. Again, I go back to the phrase, everyone now is going to the assumption, realizing there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train. We're closer to the end than the beginning. So maybe investing a little bit in these in these re, in these REITs that have multifamily and community REITs. So multifamily REITs are actually very attractive, reasonably priced. You've got a four, five, five, six percent income stream attached to a REIT that admittedly you could see 20 to 30 percent upside in 2021. So I think you know being surgical, uh, sharpening mm-hmm. your value pencil on some of these REITs is, is in an investor's best interest at this point of the cycle. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll wrap it in just maybe a few minutes, but three other things I just want to hit hit upon. Um, from a geographic perspective, where are your weightings these days? Yeah, great question. So we invest in 22 countries. Um, North America is about 64% of the portfolio. And that's really where we, we felt we had better sovereign risk over the last 12 months. We've added to our emerging market exposure selectively. I, I would have to take a step back and say Europe, we're starting to see more recovery. So we've added a little bit more exposure to Europe recently. Our exposure in, in emerging markets has been not only Brazil and Russia and India. Um, China, we, we had some exposure late last year, and we actually trimmed back the exposure because of some of the governmental issues of owning Chinese securities, things like um, uh, China Mobile, you know, very large, dominant, largest telecommunications company in the world. You know, we held that until the U.S. government said that you know you cannot purchase hold a, you know, a Chinese communications company like that. It was on the on the list, so we sold it off. But okay. should anything change with that, we're more than happy to buy something back like that. Because if I, I look at China, you look at 1.3 billion plus people, you look at the economy, the dynamism, and being able to invest in communications infrastructure in China is something that's exceptionally attractive. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and Michael, I just want to go back to kind of micro questions I have as it relates to interesting emerging maybe um, areas to invest in. Uh, water is something I've been interested in for many years. Um, Dr. Richard Sander, who started the Chicago Climate Exchange, I've known him for years and he was looking at water. I don't know exactly what he's doing with it now. Um, so that's one area I'm wondering if you're looking at and what you're doing in it or what you found. And then the other one is um, drones. I was just looking at a drone company, which isn't what I would normally do uh, the other week. Um, and this would be for cell towers. Um, and the drones are about $30,000. China was the leading supplier to the United States for this, but is now not allowed to sell in the United States. So any thoughts on either of those two subcategories to invest in? I think those are two excellent questions, Catherine. And, and you know me well enough that I always have thoughts. I always have opinions on things. And so when you, <laughs> um, if you're investing in publicly traded securities, you've got roughly 55 securities publicly traded that you can invest in that are water technology stocks. And then you have another 50 companies, publicly traded equity securities worldwide, that are water utilities. Very different. Water technology is going to act like a tech stock. You're not going to see dividends paid in that kind of water technology uh, stock. Water utilities, boring, low volatility, whether you're in a financial recession or depression, people continue to flush their toilets and take showers, at least we hope they would. And these water utilities provide consistent cash flow, consistent dividend income, and inflation protection. So you know, we've always... Uh, built portfolios that have a combination of water technology and water utilities. So on the water utility side, we look at companies like American Water Works, um, you know, California State's Water. These are companies that have a, a dominant monopoly share of the water market. They're providing utility-like exposure for water to people that are in critical areas that need water. It provides capital appreciation, modest of eight to 10% a year, another three to 4% dividend income, which is, you know, it's boring, but it's boring is beautiful oh. with that kind of cash flow and that kind of return profile. Mm -hmm. And then we complement half the portfolio with water technology with companies like Tetric Tech or Evico Water. And, you know, Tetric Tech actually has a technology where they're insulating sleeves within pipes. And so think about some of the the old rusty pipes that are in Toronto oh. and or Montreal, where they can actually have a, an engineering technology that inserts a sleeve in, inside of an old rusty iron pipe, creates a new almost PVC-like pipe. So then the water can be turned on and you actually can have water service and you can reuse the existing pipe without having to dig up thousands of miles of road and, and, and soil to, to extract the old pipe and trying to trying to actually replace retrofit all of the water. And you know, this is a worldwide problem, whether you're in London, Ontario, or London, England, there are rusty pipes that were put in 100 years ago and, and in England longer than that. So companies like Tetra Tech have a very unique, inter interesting technology, civil engineering technology that helps with the efficiency of, of water retrofitting and, and addresses some of the environmental remediation issues. Hmm. Interesting. And then drones? Great question. I, I, you know, I look at drones and the applications are limitless, right? And you know, we've, we've actually used remote due diligence capabilities for our private market, mm -hmm. as well as from the public markets where we said, okay, there's a pandemic. We can't go out and we cannot inspect a cell phone tower. We cannot go out and inspect a data center. 
But what they can do is send us a link to a video and we're watching a video where a drone actually video the entire infrastructure. And we see the measurements, we see the sizing, we can see. So doing remote due diligence, asset level analysis, vis-a-vis -vis drone technology, I think drones are changing the way we do business on multiple levels. And whether you're looking at remote due diligence, whether you're looking at package delivery, whether you're looking at cell phone towers, you know, drones of all shapes and sizes, price points, small, medium, and large, I think are going to positively impact the environment and the way we do business. And I think technology solves a lot of those problems as well. So, you know, companies that are in the drone technology space, to your point, leading edge companies in China are really, they're, they're leading the charge, right? And we're seeing some of those companies that are providing unique and differentiated technology solutions for multiple markets. So I think it's an area of worth focus as well as an area that we should, everyone should really keep an eye on, but really you know, we, should, we should keep an eye on, on developments and how they're being commercially used worldwide. Okay, um, Michael, we will leave it there. Um, I thank you so much for your time and your insights as always. And I cannot believe I said that we do this maybe 40 minutes is longer. Um, it's so nice to be able to actually have, you know, a longer format. So thanks so much for your time. It's, uh, it does take time out of people's busy day. Um, but let me also ask you for our viewers, um, how can they invest if they have an interest in your, your approach, your fund? Well, great, great question, Catherine. And thank you for the time. It's always a pleasure spending time with you investors. Um, in the US, we have a series of funds and, and pool accounts, separate accounts. If they want to visit our website, it's just Cap Innovations, C-A-P-I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N-S, capinnovations.com. Uh, easily found on, on Google. You can Google my name, Michael Underhill Capital Innovations. In Canada, we have a series of pooled accounts. Uh, we're working with the group Bridge House on uh, delivery of these pooled infrastructure and other uh, real estate, agriculture, timber, and other types of natural resource and real asset portfolios. And we'll be rolling those out in second quarter 2021. So you'll be seeing more on the on the Canadian market as we as we re-enter the Canadian market with our different funds for advisors, individual investors, as well as institutional investors. It'll we're really looking forward to getting back into Canada and spending more time there as well. Everyone that's been wonderful. Nice. And, and, and Michael, I, I should also just ask, um, you know, as people listen to you, I know they're going to look up your bio, but why don't you just give us your, a quick uh, one liner, two liners on your background. It's uh, in depth. Well, th thank you, Catherine. I mean, the, the commercial spiel is, I think if you look at, at the last 20, it's actually almost 27 years in this business, I've spent time at Lehman Brothers, Janus Funds, Invesco and Alliance Bernstein being an analyst and portfolio manager overseeing uh, multi-billion dollar portfolios for institutional investors, as well as re running registered funds. Um, my passion in real assets, infrastructure, natural resources lends itself to my focus, both professionally and personally in the service that I've worked for the United Nations as chairman of the, the infrastructure work stream for the United Nations principles of responsible investment. Uh, doing that from 2010 to 2012, writing the handbook of infrastructure investing in 2009 as well as writing content for the CFA Institute for their level one examination on infrastructure and alternative investments. So you're really trying to be an inch wide and mile deep focus on the expertise in real assets and really trying to help clients have an informed opinion on things so they can manage for better outcomes. I'm glad we, we uh, mentioned that, or you mentioned that because uh, for our viewers who might not know, I mean, Janice and Vesco Alliance Bernstein was uh, when I was on the institutional desks at, uh, 
Goldman and Deutsche Bank, those were some of the biggest accounts in the United States around the world that um, that we covered and that any individual would want to work at. So um, that's an accomplishment to just get into the into all three of those firms. So and because you learn so much and you've got exposure to so much. So um, important to point that out, I think. Um, Michael, we will leave it there. Thank you again. My pleasure, Catherine. Always a pleasure spending time with you and the viewers. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you soon. I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks.